Here we go. Today is April 17th, 2018, and this is episode 216 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you tonight? Good, sir. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good. The the uh, absurd pollen count of Atlanta is, is doing its best to kill me, but so far, I'm alive. <laughs> yeah, we're... I, we've had so much rain, so much uh, you know, back and forth cold weather that the yellow snow, I don't think, has fully had a chance to take effect yet. I, I don't know. We've had some pollen counts of like up near 4,500 yeah. a few days. And by the way, high, or I'm sorry, very high is like 150. That's <laughs> yeah, it's pretty so, crazy. So it, for those who don't know, Atlanta has this crazy thing in, in the spring of just incredible pollen amounts. So it, it actually will land on things like yellow powder, sticky powder all over everything in the spring. And it's, it, it's, and it's so kinda... thick that you'll have to clean your windshield, your, your car windows oh, yeah. off. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. Anyway, that just so it drives my allergies a little crazy. So I apologize if I sneeze or cough on the show today. Indeed. So just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And, and um, I, I think starting on the next the next episode, we'll probably st- uh, start the countdown till GDPR doomsday. Do, are we going to have like uh, specific bumper music for all GDPR related things? I think so. We're going to okay. ha- I've got to come up with something. I don't know what it will be yet, but it, it, we're going to have to uh-huh. do something. Um, and mm-hmm. by the way, I would recommend buying bonds. European bonds probably are. Well, I don't know if they, if, if they would be a good buy now or not. But anyway, I, I, I anticipate the, that the European Union will come into a, you know, a good windfall of money coming up based on the scrambling I'm seeing in the industry right now. <laughs> so there's probably like a, like a currency trade you could make on uh, yes. that gamble. Yes, that's right. <laughs> GDPR <laughs> futures. Hmm. Uh, boy, that's crazy. Anyhow, um, so so uh, this is our 2018 Verizon data brace data breach investigation report spectacular. Woo! Right. Well, yeah. I don't know if it's going to be spectacular or not, but the rest of that's absolutely accurate. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Wherein we just basically go through the report for you, so you don't have to read it. Yes, and and talk this about is, this is like, yeah, kind of like waiting for the movie version. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to read the book. You can just wait for the podcast. <laughs> but I will tell you, you should read it. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. It always is good stuff. Um, I, I think it's well differentiated from al- almost any other industry report in the, in the kind of the breadth of the, the number of incidents they consider and uh, and then also the way they, they parse it up or you parse it out and you present the information. So it's really good stuff. I think it's very useful for, um, you know, for IT practitioners to understand uh, the, the evolving attack techniques. I think it's good for uh, security management and IT management to understand uh, kind of the big picture, and you know, it it helps. You know, I think <laughs> from the perspective of PowerPoint slides and whatnot, there's a lot of there's a lot of PowerPoint worthy stuff that tends to be packed into these reports. So, And I would say there's a companion report that isn't out yet that's really awesome as well, which is the Verizon Data Breach Digest. The most recent one is 2017. Uh, and there are case studies that, that follow representative breaches. Yes. Uh, that is incredibly insightful. So I would recommend that you watch for that, read for that, go read the 2017 version of that and watch for the 2018 version that'll come out at some point. I'm not sure exactly when. Yeah, I think the last one came out in December. So it could be a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyhow, um, so kind of getting into the report and I'll, I'll put a link to the report in case you're not able to find it in, uh, in our show notes. 
So uh, in, in this, this particular report, they have considered 53,000 incidents and 2,216 confirmed data breaches. And, and so, uh, you know, the, I think this, this largely started off a long time ago, primarily uh, mining data out of Verizon, I understand it at least, mining data out of Verizon's own incident response practice. But that, this has kind of been a s snowball rolling downhill, and, and they've created a, uh, you know, a public repository and, and taxonomy for tracking data breaches. And so they have partners from all over the world, lots of uh, government certs and other incident response companies that submit data into this report. So there's you know, lots of you know, lo good, good representation. Um, I, you know, even still, though, there's some limitations that you have to be aware of because you know, at the end of the day, it's not all breaches and not all security incidents. There's, there's probably blind spots based on different types of incidents that may get deferred to an in, a cert or an investigator, some kind of outside investigator that would report this information up. The other thing you'll notice, we'll talk about it a little bit more, is the data tends to be heavily populated by public sector sources yeah. because a lot of public sector organizations are required to report breach and in, in security incident information. It's probably also worth mentioning that they, they took uh, ransomware botnets and, and that sort of thing kind of as a separate item in some of these stats too. Yeah, they, they mentioned that um, in particular the, uh, uh, I think it was attacks that led to compromised accounts and I think they they, had, they said some they had something like forty three thousand mm -hmm. incidents. They it was so lopsided they actually had to exclude that population of data. Otherwise, everything else just got drawn out. <laughs> which which is interesting because by excluding it, if you don't read the details, you might lose sight of it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So. Yeah, and that's people. It's basically people phishing bank account informations off of your phone or off of a, you know through an email, that sort of thing. Uh, typically, as I understand it, at least, uh, more kind of consumer type fraud that tends to impact an organization, right? So it's, it's fraud against a company, but it's targeted at an individual. Indeed. So, um, so moving on, there, there is a, uh, there's a summary of findings. Some of the, the, there are some interesting findings here. Some of, some of these things are a little counterintuitive to what I, I see a lot of um, a lot of security and privacy people parroting, like the fact that 73% of uh, the breaches they track are perpetrated by outsiders. The commonly cited uh, trend is that most breaches are committed by insiders. Yeah, and I think, I was thinking about that, and I think why that gets cited a lot is because for a lot of attacks right now, some of these internal credentials get captured and used. And so it makes it, you know, you can argue that there was an insider aspect of it when it was really, it's a misnomer. But I don't know, that, that's a weird one that, that we hear that all the time. Uh, you know, not to jump ahead a little bit, but another one I thought was really interesting is of the tactics utilized, only 17% were social attacks. Yes. Which didn't make any sense to me until, you know, because we hear repeatedly, and in my experience, it's also true, a heavy, heavy majority of attacks usually start over email with some sort of phishing or pretexting. Right. Right. So that threw me for a loop. And they're, they're, uh, their stat says that 48% of breaches featured some sort of, a, of hacking. And mm -hmm. whereas only 17% involves social. So that's, um, it's, it's an interesting difference right there. I agree. Um, they said 50% of breaches were carried out by organized crime. Mm -hmm. That was a little surprising to me. 76% were financially motivated and 68% of breaches took months or longer for the, uh, the, the victim to discover. 
You know what I also thought interesting was sort of the, the flip of those stats. Only 12% were nation-state or state-affiliated that they could identify. Yeah, and yet that's that's what occupies all of our mind share. Is exactly. Uh, and, and only 13% were motivated by espionage. Right. So, yeah, that's where we spend all of our time thinking and, and talking. And, you know, like you said, that's where our mind share is because that's the sexy stuff. But that is really not the majority of the threat as much as we like to talk about it based on this report at least. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your, your own organization may have a different threat model than you know, the average, so you've got to understand that. But, you know, this goes back to sort of the shark attack thing. You get a couple of shark attacks and suddenly that's all the media talks about. Uh, absolutely right. Right. So. Uh, so moving down, um, down a little bit later in the report, they start breaking things out by... Uh, by actor and threat, you know, variety, attack varieties. And I mentioned this on the show last week, and I still find this very interesting that of internal, uh, of breaches that involve internal actors, about a third involve system administrators. And that's, as far as I can tell, actual system administrators. It's not, it's not external actors reusing system administrator credentials. Yeah. Yeah, I I could see that as, you know, you've got the power, you've got the capability, you misuse it or you abuse it. Yeah. And and it's interesting that what what I find most interesting is that that's a that's a higher percentage than end users. And we often think of the end user as the main you know the, the main problem. Right. And and not the system administrator. And by the way, as a you know, if you if you kind of normalize it by population in an, in the average company, I would imagine this is a very disjointed problem. I mean, system mm-hmm. administrators in a company typically are are you know very small percentage of the overall population. So, so they're outsized risk. I think they're outsized risk, and I don't think as yeah. a, as an industry we really recognize that. No, I would agree. Uh, you know, the other thing I thought was interesting was looking at the trends from 2010 to 2017. They have some some peaks and valleys, but in general, they're fairly, you know, flat. If you look at internal versus external, um, financial versus espionage, motivations, they, they they drift a bit, but in general, they're not changing that dramatically. I don't see much trends there. No, they they, they don't really swap. So, you know, uh-uh. external has been the top the top threat actor the entire time internal has been kind of middle of the road and everything else is down you know, down yeah. at noise at the bottom which which so again is counterintuitive right i mean the it is and partner which we talk about all the time after target and a few others is a few percentage points right which is interesting i i, I guess what fundamentally i'm saying is that this is the sort of report that makes you wonder are you thinking about the wrong threat areas yeah. Are you missing the forest for the trees? Well, and and, and I, I I think um, I think news is news for a reason, right? right? And so I I I do wonder if you were to, and I don't know the answer to this, and there's probably data to figure this out. But if you were to try to normalize it by impact, you know, by 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 some some objective measure of breach severity. I, mean, I don't know how exactly how we would measure that, right? But how would that look? You know, is 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 the average partner breach worse than the average internal uh, breach derived from internal that sort of thing? Right. Yeah. What's the impact? You know, if a system goes rogue, that could have a much much deeper impact than a average user going rogue. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and it t- it seems like a lot of the you know, when 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 we have talked in the past about system administrators. Who have been in the news, uh, you know, per- perpetrating breaches? It tends to be a relatively minor. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking back over the course of the years of running the podcast, and there's been quite a few instances, and lots of system administrators have ended up in jail. But there aren't a lot of. I can't point to a, a whole lot of like major newsworthy ones, but I can point to a whole lot of major newsworthy partner type breaches. You know, Home Depot, OPM, Target, and and so on. But you know, again, that's availability bias type stuff, right? So yeah, 
And, and but what's interesting is our executives respond to that stuff. It is, but you know, I don't think we're all necessarily lined up to to have a Equifax size breach. You know, right? Like that's not necessarily the thing that we have to worry about. So yeah, so so moving moving on down. I thought it was interesting that that. And quoting from the report, when breaches are successful, the time to compromise continues to be very short, which makes sense, right? You're executing some attack. Usually it's very automated, very scripted, very quick, uh, unless it's an initial foothold and then you're pivoting. Um, continuing to quote, while we cannot determine how much time is spent in intelligence gathering or other adversary preparations, the time from first action and event chain to initial compromise of an asset is most often measured in seconds or minutes, while the discovery time is likely to be weeks or months. And that's that's held pretty steady. Uh, that's been a consistent thing throughout the years. That, you know, the breach time versus discovery time uh, is certainly outsized and uh, in terms of, of discovery time. And, and it seems like if you don't catch it initially, there's a long tail before you eventually catch it. Yeah, exactly. It's usually from some external uh, notification or issue, depending on, on you know, what it is right so so the, in their in their area of social discussing discussing the sh- social attacks mm-hmm. they, had a, they had a couple of comments in here that i thought were were pretty interesting uh and so so they partnered with a um a, i think a fishing uh, fishing test type company that that runs campaigns and so they they were gathering data on the likelihood of employees clicking on phishing. And they had a couple of interesting things. Yeah. A couple of interesting a... observations. Yep. Um, so they just quoting here, they said the test results came back and the diagnosis was that the time until the first click in most phishing campaigns is 16 minutes. So that, so from the time that the campaign starts, so the time the first person clicks is about 16 minutes. The first report, from a savvy user normally comes in at around 28 minutes. So not until 12 minutes after the first person clicks, right? So if you think about that in the con- in the bigger context, if you're relying on people reporting the you know the fish in order to be able to implement some kind of prophylactic measure, you know, th- this is kind of pointing out that that's that's probably not the best the best plan and and so so 28 minutes until the first savvy user reports it and half of the the reports are done uh within 33 minutes so you know their point is you may not catch the first click but you'll be able to limit hopefully the number of future clickers and you know i think that's um to me that that points out one of the fundamental challenges we have with the you know kind of the reporting the phishing reporting scheme of defense because uh, people are people are quite obviously clicking on things before they get reported but but even so i wonder what what is the likelihood that the average company can take you know significant prevention measures in the 12 minutes on average from the time the first person clicks you know to, <laughs> so like right. that's that's not a lot of time. Which goes back to something we've talked about a lot of how do you wrap more technical controls around that to you know, help your awareness campaigns? Because they, they had some interesting stats in here too uh, on this. Um, going back slightly uh, in the report, phishing and pretexting represent 98% of social incidents and 93% of breaches. That's huge. And email continues to be the most common vector, 96%. So I don't feel like we as an industry are spending enough time on securing email. It's such a huge avenue of attack right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, and I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, vendors pay lip service to it. It's a tough thing to solve. Uh, There are some decent vendors out there, but man, we are just getting our butts handed to us over email. Um, Malware has found less than 10% of incidents that featured pretexting, in contrast to phishing incidents where malware were present over two-thirds of the time. So pretexting is something like, hey, I'm the CEO, transfer money to this person. Or, you know, I'm in HR, send me your W-2s. Right. Uh, the two stories that were most prevalent in pretexting attacks were those targeting employees who either worked in finance or human resources. 
So I'm thinking, should we be doing something different for those departments? Should we be adding more controls, more uh, more monitoring, more uh, training, more attack simulations for, for those highly targeted folks in finance and HR? Why do we treat all employees the same when it comes to user awareness training and, and phishing awareness training? There's clearly trends in who's might, more likely to be targeted. And they, they point out that in particular, HR and finance type people tend to be very specifically targeted with, um, you know, with you know, relatively pointed attack types, and you know, with HR, it's it's phishing for W two information, and with uh, with finance and accounting type people, it's it's looking for the, the kind of the classic business email compromise. You know, transfer. I'm trying to. I'm the CEO. I'm trying to buy a company in China. Mm-hmm. Transfer me some money. So, I think you're. I think you're right. We we would do well to try to tailor the message based on the threat model of the particular organization because HR is going to have a different, you know, you're probably not going to have to worry about training HR to not transfer money, to, right. for, you know, for the CEO and you're not going to have to train accounting. I, I, well, maybe you do on W2s. But, but it goes back to know what you're defending and building process and technology and controls around minimizing the chance that you're going to inadvertently disclose it. Yes. Right. Um, Some other interesting stats here too that I saw. Uh, Unlike pretexting, which is financially motivated over 95% of the time, motives for phishing are split between uh, financial 59% and espionage 41%. Phishing is often used as a lead action of an attack followed by malware installation and other actions that ultimately lead to exfiltration of data. Further, 70% of breaches associated with an ASIN state involve phishing. So once again, we're getting our butts handed to us with phishing. Yeah. And uh, yep. some click rates I also thought interesting. 78% of people don't click a single fish all year, at least according to this fishing simulation company. Unfortunately, an average 4% of people in any giving fishing campaign will click it. 4% seems low to me. I've seen it much higher than that, but that's a pretty good average. Uh, the more phishing emails someone has clicked, the more likely they are to click in the future. Yes. So there's something to be said about someone who is can be a chronic clicker, as it were, um, which makes sense. You've got a variability and susceptibility to these sorts of things in, in human nature. Yeah, and they, uh, they, in, their, uh, in their things to consider, which are, are recommendations, they, they mentioned that you, know, you may want to consider giving a different type of device to your chronic clickers, like a, a, you know, a, a sandboxed OS or a... Right. <laughs> Chrome, uh, you know, a, a Chromebook or something like that. And I think you were starting to talk about this. Most people who are going to click a fish, phishing email, do so in just over an hour. So you got that first hour of high likelihood of clicking, and then it just the long tail is very low. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting stuff in that section, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The uh, the ransomware section is kind of uh, you know kind of interesting, yeah, but but I I would. I think there was one particular takeaway from me, and and that is well, first off, I you know I think we talked about ransomware to death, and and that most <laughs> ransomware is delivered via email, right? So that was you know, not not a very surprising thing. Most ransomware affects user devices. Uh, you if you if you look at the you know the the trend graph over time, you can see there's kind of an exponential increase over the past couple of years in, in the, the frequency of ransomware attacks, which is, you know, kind of um, comports with our, you know, I think with what we're seeing in the industry. Uh, but you know, they, they point out, again, they, you know, they mentioned that they're, um, they excluded a whole big pile of botnet infected systems that resulted in account breaches. You know, the, the point is that you should consider acting as adding a second, fact authentication factor to help mitigate a lot of the issues associated with these botnet style attacks that are targeting account takeovers and that you you should have an operational ability to find and remove botnet malware from your from your network and that that got me to thinking you know one of the one of the key metrics that we should probably be thinking about as i was as i was reading this is 
the amount of time it takes for us to detect and then remediate botnet infected systems. And in a, and of course that sure. presumes that we have a you know a, a, an ability to detect the botnets or your botnet infected PCs but um, yeah I so so the point is that what what they're trying to to highlight here is speed is of the essence the in your ability to detect and then address quickly is is really important because again a lot of these attacks have this as a, as the entry point and and yep. then and then they kind of fan out from there yeah you know the other thing that was interesting that i saw in here was and you mentioned this the, the malware vector starts 92% of the time in email but the common malware type over 50% was either javascript or visual basic script you know yeah i i saw that and that was you know that was pretty interesting to me, and and um, I know um, I know there's a, a a pretty common tactic that a lot of organizations use. What what they do, at least with with Windows PCs, is at a you know at, at an organizational level, they'll associate JavaScript and Visual Basic with Notepad, and so if somebody tries to you know launch one of those programs, it just opens up in in Notepad, which I think is which yields we, countless calls to the help desk out of confusion. <laughs> yes. It, how do it, I, I want to see my cat picture. How do I, <laughs> how do I run this? Oh, you got to open that notepad plus plus. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. No, that's, that's, you know, that's good advice. Or just if you can in your organization, just block that stuff entirely. It's tough, but if you can. Yeah. Yeah. So, so backing up just a little bit, they, they, they pointed out, a couple of really interesting metrics on malware. So I'll read here. We analyzed 444 million malware detections across approximately 130,000 organizations. So, you know, pretty good sample size. That's, that's living, that's living the good life right there. But here's where it got really weird. The median organization received 22 or less pieces of malware per year. Yeah. That really surprised me and doesn't jive with any of my experiences. No, and so so, you know that that's that tells me that there is a really really. The, the distribution is very weird in in that case, um, and then they, uh, so that was that was surprising to me. Um, I, I I don't know what to make of that. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. I I, I mean, I mean my home email account gets, more than twenty two pieces of malware a year. Yeah, but you're you're a big F and D on the internet. Well, that's true. I have the cup. That's right. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then they, they they point out that thirty thirty seven percent of malware hashes appear only once and then are never seen again, and that points out, you know, kind of really highlights the problem we have with with malware. And it it also explained my dating life. Oh, is that the problem? I I, I don't anyway. We're gonna let that one go. Um, anyway, it, you know, it's it, it kind of speaks to the to the futility of using traditional antivirus. You know, because typically, unless unless the, the the malware authors were you know not clever, and in you know in trying to make their malware evade antivirus, you know, you're, you're relying on a signature which relies on somebody having seen it before. Well, they're saying that almost forty percent of malware has never been seen before and is never seen again. And so that's, you know, that, that's a, that's a big problem, but it's not, if, should be surprising. If you, if you identify malware as hash based, which I think is a fairly less than effective technique these days. It, it is absolutely not a very effective technique, but here's my point. Malware ev or antivirus evasion is, is a, you know, well-worn well path, right? There's lots sure. of, lots of well-known techniques that malware authors will try, and this is why this is why it's so common. This is why antivirus is not all that effective, right. and so so it is most effective when, it, especially in in this environment where things like behavioral analysis is intentionally being bypassed or you know evaded by the malware authors. You kind of have to rely on some indicator, and often that requires you. To have you know to have seen it before, and then develop some kind of a 
you know, a pattern around it. And so I, I agree with you that hashes aren't a great, uh, aren't a great measure, but at the same time, the problem is, you know, we're, we're only seeing a sample once. Right. And then, right. And then which, not again. Yeah. Which, which goes, I think we're saying the same thing two different ways. If you're relying on having seen it before to block it elsewhere, you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we talked about JavaScript. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, they, so back down on the, in, in the denial of service area, th- there's not a, not a ton of really interesting stuff, but they, they, they do have a little, uh, a comment here I want to read. All right, you, um, this is a quote. You know you've heard it. So have we. DDoSes are used to cover up real breaches, not unlike the government is covering up evidence of alien visitation. It's often That's heard, true. but not so easy to prove. This year's data set only had one breach that involved denial of service. And in that one, the breach was a compromised asset used to help launch a DDoS, not the other way around. In fact, we have never had a year with more than a single digit breaches in the denial service pattern. Like aliens, they may be out there, but we aren't seeing them. Now, this is really important. I, you know, I, to, <laughs> I think when, it, when I read that, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of like razor blades and candy bars. You know, we, during Halloween. Um, you know, it, oh, you, you, you only do it at Halloween? Well, I thought that was a year round technique. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm for for you youngins who've never heard this, you know, go look it up on the internet. Um, so when, this is when I was so young. We had to take our our candy to the hospital and have it X-rayed. Okay. Anyway, because we prefer to radiate. Anyway, so so this is a persistent myth. Yes, is what I'm seeing here. Yes. Um, although I still think it's best practices when you're getting DDoSed to ensure that you've got some. Assets in reserve to watch other things. Correct. Seems, but eh, correct. And also, cattle mutilations are up. (laughs) Well, you know, the other interesting things I took out of this was um, the average size of the DDoS is actually fallen slightly, and it's just under a gigabit per second. Yes. And the average length is. Not that long. Uh, if you can weather it for, you know, a day or two, you're in good shape. They usually go away. Yeah, and there and there uh, and there are things to consider section, which again is their recommendations. You know, they 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 point out kind of the the standard advice that you really need to prepare ahead of time. You need to you need to ident- you know understand how much un you know non availability you can withstand in your environment and then you need to work with your ISP to procure some some sort of protection ahead of time because this is a this is a miserable thing to try to to mitigate when it's happening if you haven't yeah. already done that and you know Akamai by the way will help you for a very handsome price right as as will other ISPs well other yeah many many right. will but the point is are you, you getting are you getting secret sponsorship from Akamai that I'm not aware of? Well, no, that, that's probably not what they wanted me to say, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the, yeah, the, for, I mean, for a reasonable price, they will help you. No, right. it, I mean, seriously, you will get taken for a ride. If you if you wait until yeah. you're under attack, It's it gets very expensive. The other thing I thought interesting was that amplified DDoS is very quickly rising. So... That's where you use some sort of small spoof packets and bounce off some service with a much larger reply packet to attack your target. So the, now that represents over 75% of attacks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is something that the folk, you know, other folks on the internet could do a, go a long way to help clean up if they properly secure their environment so they can't be used in that way. But that's tilting at windmills. Well, we, you know, we 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 constantly see the 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 protocols and services used for those reflective DDoS attacks changing over time because it is like whack-a-mole, and so you you know we 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 have seen um, you know like we saw the 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 memcache attacks a couple you know a, a while ago, and those were being used as reflective DDoS attacks, and and we you know so we we see this. These things come and go, but you know th- this has been going on for a long, long time. I mean, it's been you know using using uh, you know D- just you know vanilla DNS queries, looking for 
certain certain domains that have you know really large responses and and you know using that and you know DNSSEC and you know NTP and so 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 even if even when we remediate one you know there's another one that seems like <laughs> it's that's not far behind but it is concerning that we're seeing this on the rise I'm, I I thought to be honest I thought this was a you know, a common problem all along. I didn't realize it was something that was on the rise. So that, that was kind of news to me. The other thing they, they mentioned in this recommendation, which I think is really valuable, really valuable information to keep in mind, and that is that they, they preface it by saying avoid tunnel vision. And, you know, not only do you need to understand, you know, what a, what a DDoS looks like, but you need to, you need to understand in the heat of the moment the be the ability to to separate out something that is a DDoS attack from something that might be caused by some other kind of operational issue, and so so sometimes you know IT security people are quick to jump on oh my god, you know the the internet connection is down it must be a DDoS attack or you know something like that and then you know conversely we might see something that looks like a you know the, the firewall is acting up and that could actually be a DDoS attack. So it's, it, it is helpful. And I've, I've seen this, right. I've seen it. I've seen it happen both ways. I've experienced it myself. It really is important to be able to quickly understand what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember a story. Uh, I was working at a company and we were doing some amount of managed services and we were turning customers up and turning things on. And suddenly we were getting denial of service at the firewall. And the firewall was falling over. And it turned out... <laughs> you were just successful, right? <laughs> the syslog stream coming from the customer was so chatty, it was overwhelming the firewall. Mind you, this was like in the late 90s, early 2000s. But, you know, but everybody was thinking we were under attack, and they're like, "No, no, we just we just uh, didn't filter our syslog stream enough." Yeah, just popular. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and you know the other interesting thing I think about in, in in DDoS is figuring it out quickly. Like, are you are you instrumented your environment enough to identify where your floods coming from? Yeah, and exactly. it, it's amazing how difficult that is because it doesn't always happen from the outside. You know, something as simple as just plotting the network activity on all your firewall ports can be incredibly useful for saying, "Oh, well, that flood's not coming from the outside; it's coming from this weird DMZ." It's coming from inside the house. The DDoS is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Have you checked the packets? Again, old folks will get that joke. Yes. Um, when is Madlock on again? It's about a half hour. I think I'm going to miss the early bird special. <sighs> so yeah, that that was some of the takeaways I got from the DDoS section, um, and I completely agree. If you're not if you're not set up for DDoS ahead of time with your ISPs engaged, you're you're in for a world of hurt. Yeah, you just you're pr pretty much going to be waiting it out unless your ISP has you know has a way to help you out in the interim. But that is kind of whack-a-mole on their side, right? They're trying to put in line basically usually just ACLs as they try to identify bad traffic from good traffic. And it's it's painful. It is. Very painful. It is. All right. Um, moving on. So this is this is down in their um, you know, incident classification patterns. So there were just a couple of, couple of interesting call-outs that I thought here in the in their miscellaneous errors category they point out that half of the uh, over half of the breaches that are uh, uh, attributable to this miscellaneous category were misdelivery you know basically sending an email to the wrong person and i've seen this before yeah. i mean this is it's a big problem and i know it's a big problem um Especially with like autofill email addresses. Not that I've ever had that happen to me personally. No, how that never. How'd that recall functionality work out for you? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not. Not that that's ever happened to me. I'm just okay, saying. For the, could, for the record, don't do a recall because then it makes us really curious about what you tried to recall. That's right. And we're gonna go scour it for the details. 
That's right. It's like That's the Streisand right. effect. That's right. They they uh, down in the web application attack section, they point out that uh, use of stolen credentials is the top variety of hacking above SQL injection, which I thought was so interesting. Here's where I start to go a little sideways on this report. Use of stolen credentials, I often think of as almost like a social attack. Yeah. Um, you know, if, it's a if good it point. started... It's a good point. And this is where you can kind of get tripped up on the taxonomy, and everybody's got to come up with, you know, what they believe to be accurate. And But if somebody fell for a phishing attack and gave up their stolen credentials, and then somebody logs in with those stolen credentials, did they really hack me, or did they fish me? Mm, good point. I don't know. That's just my random i'm not this is not the hill i'm gonna die on but it's my random two cents yeah on that. I, I wonder how much of this is that versus like credential reuse you know so credentials right. found in dumps that stolen from other sites that sort of thing yeah which gets me on another soapbox about everybody going we shouldn't make people change their passwords well this is why we make people change their passwords or use two-factor or something yeah yeah what All we're right, doing what we're doing isn't working um <laughs> So, so they uh, they, they do talk about mobile. They they have a section on mobile. They, you know, it's it's. I would, I would summarize it by saying, yep, someday it's probably going to be a risk, uh, but but not really yet. Uh, they did they did point out that, um, and I'll just quote: as mobile devices often provide privileged access to enterprise environments and hold two-factor authentication credentials. These classes of malware and device-based attacks can be uh, can result in more damage than adware click fraud. So basically, saying, you know, mobile devices are susceptible to lots of different types of attacks, but our increased reliance on them for you know multi-factor authentication, particularly for um, you know for administrative-style accounts, you know, may end up leading to tears in the future, and we ought to be thinking about that. So, you know, that's that. I think that's more of a forward-looking thing. Um, they so so down in, in the next section is is industry verticals, and we're, we're not going to make you suffer through reading this. I think we did this last year, and Andy and I both agreed that we wouldn't do that to you again. So yeah, yeah. It, it, I think I think we saw a suicide spike yeah. after that show, and I still have nightmares. Yeah, yeah, but there there were a, there was one thing that I I I found interesting. They give a grid basically, um, you know, by by uh, incidents and breach counts uh, across a bunch of different industry verticals. And you know what what I mentioned at this at the beginning of this discussion was, you know, public public sector stuff is orders of magnitude larger in terms of the number of incidents than any other industry you know they have, they have 22,000 incidents the next largest is unknown which is a thousand and after that it gets down into like the low hundreds uh, but but what's really really interesting to me is that it, it, when you compare the number of incidents to the number of breaches so there are 22,000 large incidents with large uh, large public sector entities, but only 111 breaches, which is really interesting. It, when you compare that against other, uh, you know, because typically the, the, you know, the, the oft said thing is that, you know, g government tends to not be very good at security and whatnot. But I, I'm, you know, this is an interesting thing, right? So looking at healthcare, just as for comparison, large healthcare breaches, our large health care incidents, 165. Large health care breaches, 99. Right, so over half, over half of the, the incidents resulted in a breach. Whereas, you know, a, a, a fraction of a percent of public sector incidents resulted in a breach. So, so I thought that was really um, very interesting. It, it is. I would just echo what we said at the beginning of the show, which is that there could be some sample bias here. There could be some... Uh, you know, yep. yep. You know, there could be, there could also be an interesting thing of concentration of risk when you start talking about public sector. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, so quickly moving on down, they they have a, a kind of patterns broken out by um, 
by industry, by asset type. I, I found it really interesting that servers were one of the most attacked assets, which, you know, I guess. Again, that doesn't jive with maybe. Hmm. My thought process is that endpoints are, are initially the most attacked. Now, maybe they pivot to go after servers yet next. Well, but you know what's interesting is endpoints aren't one of the asset types. Now, I don't know if that's because they don't rise, you know, the, the, if there isn't enough of them to make it. And, and, and I think, by the way, that I think the reason is that the ultimate goal of the attack was the server, not the, not the workstation. And, yeah, then, sure. uh, and then uh, from an action perspective, hacking was, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, is, is the most prevalent across the board. Uh, and then, let's see, any, any... Yeah, I think the rest gets into all the specifics of the various industries. Correct. Which is very much worth reviewing if for your own vertical, but it gets really bogged down to share it generally. Yeah, so th there, there was one, um, one chart on page 56 and the, the title of this one is how attackers pivoted between techniques to violate different security properties and it, it's an it's an interesting looking chart it basically maps out the different hops attackers take you know either internal external or partner the different hops they take through the you know through the various different categories so it's it's a really interesting view of the kind of the chain of of events that attackers are using uh and then you know that the, they go through it uh, towards the end of the report they give you a, a you know, some description of the methodology they use to uh to create the report they have some they actually have a an entire page dedicated to uh discussions about sample bias and that their analysis statistical analysis and things like that so it's it is important i think to to, to read those things and understand the limitations here but you know in, in general they one of the things they point out at the beginning of the report is that the aggregate numbers, while interesting, are, are, are probably not the thing you should be focusing on. You should probably be looking down in your industry vertical and, and focusing on the different types of attacks that are, uh, you know, that are hitting companies in, in your particular industry. And then, uh, and then of but course, you're using that in your PowerPoints. Keep in mind, these are averages and trends. You could be an outlier. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Somebody wins the lotto, right? But probably not you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a good report. It's well reading. When the Data Breach Digest comes out, we'll cover that too, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Because that's that, I think, is really insightful and a really good match for our show because it, it talks through different breaches and what happened and we can really dig into how we can defend against them and, you know, pontificate. Absolutely. Prolifically. Absolutely. So anyway, that is uh, that is this year's Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report Spectacular. And was it spectacular for you? You know, I so, so I, I do want to say, and maybe it's just that we've been doing this too long, but it it wasn't. It didn't. This report didn't feel as insightful as previous reports, and maybe that's just because it's like a lot of more of the same. You know, it. You know, yeah. I can see that. I mean, yeah, we have been doing this since the dawn of time. Uh, and not, but yeah, there weren't. I mean, there weren't any big changes from last year in sort of trends or, you know. Right. Right. There weren't. There the weren't new, a lot of surprise, shocking things. Right. You just want the new shiny things. I do. I do. You're like, you're like a puppy who doesn't like the toy we just bought her. <laughs> the box. Yes. <laughs> um, but no. Seriously, I think the. The thing that I'm I'm always looking for is, you know, what what's what's coming down the line. What should we be focusing on? That's you know that's the thing that I try to and to do in my you know in in my position in my company is is really try to understand where is the where's the where's the threat landscape going? How are things changing? What should we be doing now? to address threats that might, you know, might sub significantly materialize or change in, you know, in a, a year or two years or three years. And so trying to, to predict those trends. And I think for me, th these reports are, are, you know, really important. Uh, but, but again, I, I just didn't see anything that was, 
you know, really shocking. Um, but again, I, I don't think that was any fault of the report. It was just, this, this is the, the reality of the industry. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'll, again, I, I'll put a link to the report. Uh, I do think it's worthwhile for you know just about anybody who is in the IT security realm to give this a read. It's it's really well worth the read. It's it's very well written. The the team that does this does a fantastic job, and I you know I I certainly don't feel like I've done the report justice. So I, I highly encourage you to read it. Yeah, I would agree. You haven't done it justice. Bite me. And, and, Bite me. And, Bite and, me. And, and, and you should read it. And, uh, you know, again, uh, no affiliation with Verizon. We just like the report. Also, you know, use this to inform your defensive plans, right? Don't get, don't get caught up with whatever the flashy news is and the latest named vulnerability with a logo and a theme song and a, and a mascot and a marketing campaign. <laughs> you know, look, look at what's really happening. Uh, don't become an edge case extremist. Yeah, I I think that's that's really good uh, good advice. In in security, there's always more to do, right? You're you're never yeah. done in security. There's always more to do, and and so from that perspective, we have to we have to prioritize, and we can't let ourselves get enamored with the shiny thing. And you know, we have to be able to separate the meltdown inspectors from the MS 1710s. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's important stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, those are, those are two really simple, simplistic examples. Right. But especially when you're, you're trying to secure an organization of any kind of size, it takes a long time to implement change. And so I, I, I still think reports like this are very important for informing our, our planning, like you said. So anyway, thank you for listening to us drone on about this report hopefully you got something out of it please read the report and with that we will talk again real soon by the way patreon donors you're awesome thank you yeah thank you very much and uh, again follow the show on twitter at defensive sec follow mr keller on twitter at lurg me on twitter at malicious link website is www.defensivesecurity.org and with that we will talk again bye-bye bye-bye